Hi everyone, my name is Nisreen Kamal. I am the Arabic editor of the China Global South project. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about the work we're doing before you get to today's podcast. So basically, if you check the news to look for stories about China's ties with the United States or Europe, you will definitely find a lot. But when it comes to stories about China's relations with developing countries, which we call the Global South, it's a different situation. So this is where we come in because we provide you with in-depth analysis and daily reporting about China's activities in Africa, the Middle East, Asia, and even the Americas. And our services are available in three languages, which are English, Arabic, and French. So you can subscribe to our services for only $15 a month. You can try it for free for 30 days at chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Thank you. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. And we're thrilled to have back on the show our own francophone editor, Jeronima. Uh, bonjour to you. Uh, again, a very good morning as well. Bonjour and good morning to you, Eric. Well, the Golden Week holiday in China is coming to an end uh, this week. The Chinese have been off all week. The National Day holiday was, I think, last Saturday. And as part of the National Day holiday, typically in China, it's like the July 4th weekend in the United States or July 14th Bastille Day in France. And it brings up a lot of patriotism. And what do people do when they want to feel patriotic, not just in China, but in a lot of countries? Well, they go to the movies, and this year they went to the movies, and the big blockbuster this year was a movie called Homecoming. As of Wednesday, it took in $115 million across the country. It's still only being shown in China right now, but it definitely captured a lot of the headlines. The story is set in the fictitious country of Numia Republic in North Africa back in 2011. You gotta love the names, guys, that they come up for these uh, these fake countries. And it's told from the perspective of two Chinese diplomats, Zhong Dawei and Cheng Lang, who are ordered to assist the evacuation of 125 stranded Chinese nationals when war breaks out again in this fictitious country. The movie is directed by Zhao Xiaozhi and also starring Zhang Yi, Wang Junkai, and Yin Tao. These are all big mega blockbuster superstars in China. And for those of you who may not be familiar with what happened in North Africa back in 2011, it's actually based on real events and the outbreak of civil war in Libya. Back then, China evacuated 30,000 of its nationals. So just so you have a, a little better understanding of what actually happened back then, let me play you a little bit of sound from Chinese state broadcaster CGTN about how they covered that story back then. And this will set up the context for the movie. The Chinese embassy to Libya has facilitated the evacuation of more Chinese nationals out of the warring country. According to the embassy, 878 Chinese nationals have been evacuated since the conflict began, while some 260 more will leave the country by plane in the coming days. 
A few dozen Chinese workers have decided to stay in the country. The embassy again issued warnings to all Chinese expatriates still in Libya, urging them to leave the country as soon as possible. Chinese working teams have arrived at the border between Libya and Tunisia to help Chinese nationals pull out. Buckle up your seatbelts, get the adrenaline going, and here's a little bit of sound from Homecoming. What do we do? That's what they're saying. Never assume the worst is what he's saying. China will never leave any citizen behind. We must bring everyone home, said the geriatric leader who was probably some dignitary and some high-level official in China. And in the movie, Kobus and Giro, one of the phenomena that came out of this was people on Weibo were posting pictures of their fellow cinema-goers crying. And it really is this massive injection of patriotism. Kobus, what was your take on Homecoming, the phenomena of the past week, the movie, and what it says about the continuation of these narratives that we see coming out of Chinese entertainment about fictitious African countries that are rooted in real events? Yeah, I, I found that the, the the continued setting of Africa, uh, or the continued use of Africa as a setting, is um, very interesting. Um you know, obviously, I, I guess, I guess it, it, it's a, it's a, a testament to the centrality of Africa in this kind of early phase of China's China's kind of international outreach, and it makes you, it gives you the feeling that that maybe they're in a in a new phase of that outreach, or maybe they feel that they're in a new phase of of that outreach now, because so much, of, so, so many of these movies are retrospective, you know, or like so 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 it feels like it's it's you know that kind of African engagement is already kind of lies in in China's mythical past in a way. So that's. Really interesting and then also um you know this this kind of continued theme of of citizens being rescued you know um and the kind of long arm of 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 the state to the kind of like you know comforting long arm of the state you know kind of coming to hug you you know kind of transnationally you know is that's that's a very interesting theme i mean in a lot of ways these movies are based on or, or like seem ve- to me very influenced by by 1980s kind of american action movies like rambo for example and you know kind of but it is very interesting that in in the case of rambo it's almost always the, the individual against the state or the individual against corrupt state agents but in this case the state is not corrupt right kind of like the state is the state is there to help and 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 it's it's that's a it's kind of interesting flip you know on on those conventions and giro what's very interesting about all of these movies that we're going to play some sound and discuss Operation Red Sea, and then, of course, Wolf Warrior 2 and some others later on, so we can reference that in detail. But one of the themes from all of these movies, as Kobus mentioned, is that it does seem to parallel a lot of the Western tropes about Africa. Number one, Africans and the continent itself and the place seem to be props in these movies. And there's no agency to the place and the people. And again, there's a, that's the typical type of racist portrayal of Africa and developing countries that, that white people have done for decades, if not centuries, in their framing of these stories. And so there's a lot of similarities to me in terms of the stereotypical caricatures of Africa, Africans, and also this idea that, you know, outside there, over there is this chaotic world, and we are this 
kind of bastion of stability that's coming to rescue our people from this chaos. So the outside world is chaos and at home, things are nice and stable. How do you kind of see these themes that, that Kobus talked about with Rambo and some of the, the, the ideas that I'm kind of putting out there? So Eric, you, you've mentioned it's, it's, it's the continuance of a certain narrative that we've seen with Western movies, American movies, and even some European movies. The context remained the same, as you mentioned, that African, in, even in, in terms of the setting itself in the movies, Africans remains, remains prop. They are not the main character of the movie. They're not the main, the main actor. So the narrative about them is really quite, um, it's more depending on the main character of a Chinese play, the Chinese stakeholders in the movies, the Chinese actors in the movie that's only in the setting of the movie but on the story itself in the movie it's we keep on playing on that narrative of Africa being the chaotic continent where every war happens or every disease happens and where we need to come and save people from. Even though the country itself is a fictitious country, but we can even uh, we can see, as you said it earlier, it's mentioned, it's rooted on the real event stories. But we kind of feel that the narrative remains the same. That if we want to play a place where we're gonna be saving people, where we're gonna be rescuing people, we have to rescue them from. Africa. Africa. We have to rescue them from somewhere in the Middle East, in the chaotic region of the Middle East. And um, it's really interesting that Chinese movies are keep on playing on that perspective while when you see in the media, you, a few months ago we interviewed um, some experts when we were talking about Chinese media, how they were trying on the media side, they were trying to see that we are portraying a good a good image of Africa, that you know, in Africa we are trying, there are things that everything is not war, everything is not disease. But when it comes to play the Chinese savior, they're playing exactly in the same narrative with the Westerns where, you know, in Africa we are kind coming to play as the savior one. So it's quite interesting, and at a certain level. Yeah, that's an interesting contrast. Kobus, you and I have spoken with a number of Chinese scholars who talked about, I think it's called constructive news or positive news, where this whole idea, uh, what's it called? Positive journalism. Positive journalism. So on the state media side, the CGTN side, you're right, Jero, they're, they're really trying to downplay the chaos and that Africa's full of positive stories. But on the entertainment side of things here is a totally different story. And interestingly enough, in the positioning of CGTN against, say, BBC or CNN, when they say you only focus on the negatives, it does seem like the the backstories of these big movies are all about war, chaos, disease, famine, all of the different tropes. But Kobus, you follow entertainment very closely, and you also think a lot about the framing of Africa in mass entertainment. So we've talked about Rambo, which was in the 80s when I was a kid, and, and one of the hallmarks of Rambo was that he kills tons of people. I mean, just he, the, the body count in Rambo must have been in the hundreds, if not thousands. And that was something similar in what we saw in Wolf Warrior 2, where they just, you know, kill tons of people. Has Western cinema advanced past Rambo in its framing of Africa, or, or they're not doing much anymore. I can't remember the last movie that was set in a place like Africa. Or is Chinese, or are the Chinese kind of picking up something that the West left behind and the Western media now is, is more sensitive to some of those portrayals? Well, obviously, okay. There's a, there's a, f- a few a few things. One is I think that that Western media is just in, in a in a in a space of you know b- because of the the power of a free um, social media. Like I think Western media is just in in a in a place of more conversations about these things. You know, so so I, I don't think the the, the portrayals have ne- necessarily stopped, but they but you know the prominent ones get come in for more criticism. But I think that I, I think Africa plays a bigger role in the 
in these Chinese movies than they did in in Hollywood, you know, kind of influences. Because, for example, Rambo is set in Vietnam, right? So um, the or the maybe more specifically the 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 the, the kind of iconic second Rambo, the 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 the, the sequel is is largely set in Vietnam. And there, I think, you know, obviously, a, a lot of those 80s movies were in different kind of ways, kind of working through or reframing, retelling kind of tra- like wartime trauma for, 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 for Americans. You know, kind of, so Africa has shown up as this kind of like chaotic kind of backwater, chaotic setting, but not not consistently, I think, in, you know, in, in, in Western movies. Like, uh, you know, if, if like something like Black Hawk Down, for example, is, a, you know, is, is a famous example. But I don't think there is necessarily over the last while such a kind of consistent use of Africa in this particular way. I think the way that the, the 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 this kind of like set of Chinese kind of blockbusters, I think, do that in like more conclusively than you know kind of than the West. Um, you know, kind of whereas I think the West would frequently they would kind of mix it up and just like sometimes Southeast Asia, sometimes South America. You know, it's like different parts of the global South and um, you know showing up as as these kind of chaotic backdrop backdrops and frequently. You know, also, you know, kind of, we, we in, in the West, we're also living in the era now, I think, very amplified by Netflix of the kind of transnational thriller, you know, kind of like you're in Estonia, then you're jumping, then you're in Benin, you know, like, like, you know, 10 minutes in per, per country. You know, it, it's, it's interesting that the Chinese are focusing on, uh, you know, a coherent kind of, you know, background, a coherent setting where where the the protagonists don't kind of skip out and jump to other places, kind of um, you know, kind of Jason Bourne style or, or James Bond style, but then also that these consistent settings are are so frequently in Africa, more more frequently than than I think Western movies. Well, there's also a lot taking place in the Middle East and in Operation Red Sea, which also stars Zhang Yi, by the way, who was in Homecoming, a special Chinese military task force is deployed to the fictitious country of Iwa. I think that's how you say it, I-H-W-E-A. I wonder how they come up with these names, but that's kind of, okay, Iwa. Sounds like an Ikea couch, I think. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, And it's a story that's loosely based on, again, another evacuation of Chinese citizens, this time from Yemen back in 2015. And again, these clips are in Chinese, so many of you will not understand what they're actually saying, but that's not quite the point here. The point is for you to get the tone, the vibe, and also to hear some of the similarities in each of the trailers. So let's take a listen to Operation Red Sea from 2018 and this one is targeted at terrorists. Big bang, boom, there you go. The mission, here's what they said. The mission is a message to all terrorists. You will never harm a Chinese citizen. Pretty cool. And then what they do is if you have to picture all of the the, the visuals there are of PLA Navy ships with these really big guns and, you know, commandos who are decked out. And in Giraud, it makes me think a little bit of this idea of terrorists not harming a Chinese citizen. And what we saw last year in the Eastern DRC with, well, you know, terrorists harming lots of Chinese citizens through kidnappings, through assaults and whatnot. And the Chinese embassy response was not send in the Delta Force to get these folks out. It was... Well, you have until December 5th to get out and then you're on your own. (laughs) So a very slightly different message than what we're seeing in some of these movies. But uh, when it comes to this terrorism message, that one speaks to your country and what's been going on. 
Yes, exactly that. It really speaks to countries like mine, like Nigeria, where we see a lot of Chinese being abducted, kidnapped, and killed even in different areas. And same that it's the same message that they said in in DRC is the same message the Chinese embassy in Nigeria also said to to the to its people in different regions. That region is very dangerous. You should evacuate by this time. So we beyond that beyond that time we won't guarantee your safety in that region. So it's quite very paradoxical to see that approach. Like in a one in a movie in movie setting we say yeah we we will not let any chinese citizen being harmed in the other one in the real life the situation is different and i think in the real life they're more confronted to the reality that you know in their own foreign policy we won't get involved in people um, in foreign countries sovereignty or in foreign countries internal affairs but even if it involves chinese chinese citizen but the the longer we go in that context, the longer they get engaged in different parts of the global south where safety becoming is becoming some of issues. And we saw last week how they this week I think where they sent uh, of um, public official to DOC and Nigeria to speak with the official of this country. The more we see those kind of engagement in terms of uh, Chinese safety, we might even in the future starting to see much more engagement in the safety of the citizen. Will they go like in the movie to say? no Chinese citizen will be uh, will be harmed or we won't let any Chinese citizen to be harmed. I don't think so, but I do believe that in a certain extent with big com- with Chinese being employed in big 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 state owned companies or enterprise, they will be they will start to start they will try to send a message that we can keep our people safe. But not all of them, I'm not sure, but most of they will try at least for the state owned company to say, Okay, we can keep our workers safe and uh, yes, we are the Chinese and we are keep we are becoming more and more powerful. So there's some great research that's been done by uh, noted Africa-China scholar Paul Nantulia in Washington. He's at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. And he follows quite closely on joint uh, military operations or police operations. Let me just call them security operations because I'm not exactly sure what branch of the forces are there. Uh, we reported on this last year, Kobus, I think it was in Uganda, that Chinese special forces deployed with Ugandan special forces in order to get people on uh, China's most wanted list. So they will pursue criminals that are on their most wanted list. That happens quite a bit here in Southeast Asia as well. We haven't seen it quite as much in the space of rescuing Chinese nationals. In fact, Chinese companies have a long reputation of paying ransoms for abducted uh, employees more than rescuing them. It's just because it's a pragmatic way. So in Mali earlier this year, a number of Chinese were freed just suddenly, and the suspicion was that the ransoms had been paid. And that's one of the reasons why people think that Boko Haram, also in the Eastern DRC and in other places, they target Chinese more than other nationalities because there is the perception that they will be paid ransoms in exchange for releasing hostages. Again, hard to tell that because there isn't a lot of data about it. But Kobus, when we think about these movies, I'm going to play some sound from Wolf Warrior 2, and I want you to kind of go back into the mental archive and pick up what Wolf Warrior 2 was like. It's inconceivable that this would ever happen overseas simply because of what Giraud said and this doctrine of non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries. Can you imagine 
if a, an action star like Wu Jing, who's this the star of of Wolf Warrior, if he was in real life and just you know killing dozens of Africans and going through neighborhoods and, and just you know driving through and destroying homes and blowing up factories and things like that, what the optics of that would look like in real life for the Chinese? So let's take a listen to. Wolf Warrior 2, and then Kobus, I'd like to come back to you to get your take on all this and start to wrap all of this together. Our facial recognition crew uploaded video of this man fighting off some of the pirates. His name's Lang. Wolf Warrior, welcome to Africa. And basically now it just is kick ass for two hours. And and Cobus, my favorite part of this movie was when you remember when they were driving and he's with the, I think presumably the white American woman who happens to speak fluent Chinese, and they're in this savannah, and he says, you know, where's your government? She says, Well, I tweeted them <laughs> and I did an at US Embassy. <laughs> And then the camera pulls back as they drive by, and conveniently there are lions and giraffes. And it was just every African cliche and trope just right packaged into a good 60 seconds. So they are the granddaddy of all of these movies. Wolf Warrior brought in almost a billion dollars. It set the tone in many ways. I think we're seeing so many of these movies that have a similar formula as Wolf Warrior because it made so much money. But what does Wolf Warrior mean in terms of the understanding of these cultural studies? Well, you know, Wolf Warrior is such a such a key text. <laughs> Not to sound like an academic, but the um, the you know it, it it's interesting for me how you know like all of this all of this uh, all of these movies that is kind of dramatizing not only the the dangers but like kind of ambivalently dramatizing the this kind of presence of chinese people in internationally <clears throat> you know on the one hand facing all these dangers but on the other hand also also dominating the landscape, you know, kind of like striding around, kicking down doors, doing what, doing whatever they need to do. But then at the same time, already having, like by the time the movie starts, usually these Chinese people are already out there busy doing good, right? Kind of they, so, so all of, all of that is like this kind of complex negotiation about, you know, kind of China's international presence. It, it strikes me, you know, that, that there's a, there's a lot of like back and forth, a lot of amb ambivalence about the different kind of aspects of being Chinese in the world and the kind of like the, um, the kind of growing presence of China in the world. But it's all happening during, a, during a time when there's such kind of massive social, um, centralization, you know, kind of under Xi Jinping, you know, kind of where, where the party kind of like stepped back into the, this kind of central role in, in Chinese society. And then, kind of, you know, kind of reorganize everything around it in a way, you know. So, so, so that kind of combination of things is very interesting for me. You know, kind of like as 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 life in China becomes more securitized and more kind of party centric, there's all of this, you know, all of these kind of depictions of the party kind of moving out in or the you know this is kind of party state kind of moving out into the world in and in order to to you know to to keep the, the citizens safe but then at the same time the, the 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 presence of the citizens into the in the world is both good and bad you know and and there there seems to be a a kind of a 
this kind of complex negotiation, you know, kind of with with a, a population that's not necessarily used to having this huge international pr- like pr- presence, and now they now they have right, kind of like China, kind of like f- at some stage, kind of like past that kind of. Uh, some kind of international superpower benchmark where it now has all of these massive in, you know interests overseas that it can't just easily pull back into itself and it, it seems to me that there's a lot of kind of public anxiety around that and that a lot of these movies are kind of playing into those kind of things you know kind of like they're playing into the ambivalence of being both influential around the world and at the same time you know kind of exposed around the world I'd like to add something to what Kobe said, Eric. There is also that need of uh, projecting power to show that we are projecting we are projecting power, that we are getting and more and more assertive in our foreign policy, that we are able to protect our people. But it's a kind of double-edged sword because in a case where they set up the the the, the movie in a, in on on Africa, for example, it's a double-edged because. In Africa they want to they want to show at the same time they are powerful but they also they're also protective you know they they can be good they can be good by pro, um, projecting their power by you know by, by securing people by rescuing people like in Wolf Warrior, we can really rescue rescue people from different dangers we can also so that we can also sit and do that but in the same time by using all the stereotype that we know about Africa things that some some they some they're real some they're not real but by using all the stereotype in the same time they're reinforcing the same image they are trying to fight about africa you know and right now for example if i was in china i wouldn't be like you know as an african you could you could expect chinese to believe that after watching those movies they, ah your country is really you know it's really unsafe and we're really gonna come and save you in the same we we can we can come and save you because it's not really a, a safe place for you but for on from an african perspective in africa like you guys you are coming in africa you want to show us that you know you are good you are different from the west but you keep on putting us in a bad perspective out in the world that we are still this continent where you find wars and where you find all the disease so at the end they're kind of you know walking on this double-edged sword that western media and western entertainment they didn't have they did not have to because the west in africa it was not like we are the savior They have, they, they have their own past with Africa. So they could allow themselves to make the kind of movie where Africa or Middle East is like, you know, a place of chaos that we are coming to rescue people. But the Chinese, when they came, they came with the message that, you know, we are different. We are respecting you. And um, when they do that, you cannot in the same time also projecting power by using Africa as a prop of a bad places of every instability that you can save people from. Well, you know, kind of, I think, I think there, there's also something very interesting there because I think the, you know, obviously, kind of Hollywood portrayals of these things are older, right? Kind of than, and and so they 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 stretch back over other kind of geopolitical, you know, eras. And there's and there's many of these movies, old kind of Hollywood movies that you know set set, for example, in the Cold War, you know, kind of like we're good, and we're up against you know, the Soviets, but in country X, right? Kind of like in the thirds. And so, you know, in, in a lot of ways, this is this something like Wolf Warrior is a similar kind of thing of like where it's not, it's not only about the, the presence of Chinese power, but it's it's this kind of referendum on which kind of external superpower power is good or bad, you know, kind of like America versus versus China. But then it's it's also interesting how on the Chinese side, frequently, if, if you watch something like Wolf Warrior, the crisis in Africa In, in the crisis in that fictional African country frequently has a direct cause, a, you know, a starting point and, a, a, you know, um, and 
there's a kind of instrumentalist kind of view of what caused this problem. And then, in, you know, in Wolf Warriors specifically, it was caused by these these mercenaries, these kind of Western mercenaries. If if you compare it to something like, I don't know, did any of you see the Beyond Borders? Like, it's a it's an Angelina Jolie movie from the, from the I think, early 2000s, where she plays an aid worker. So it's like this kind of like, it's, it's a weird movie to watch. It's like a, these kind of like, it's like aid workers falling in love with, with the background of like some horrible war scene behind them, you know? But like, what, what, what's interesting there in contrast is that in, in Beyond Borders, there is no start. There was no like original cause of of this kind of African chaos. But when you arrive, Africa is just already a chaotic place. I don't even know if it's in Africa. Actually, it's like it's you know kind of it's in the global south, and and they actually jump from from kind of war scene to war scene as well. But you know kind of the the point being that that in in the the case of Wolf Warrior, there is a cause to all of this chaos and dysfunction, right? And that cause, to a certain extent, is bad external power, and that's now being fa- f- being fixed by good Chinese external power. Whereas in the case of of something like like Beyond Borders or, or you know kind of later era like something like like Black Hawk Down as well, there is this kind of feeling of like oh these places are just terrible. They're just like it's, it's the kind of movie version of of, of Donald Trump's asshole countries. You know it's just like these countries are just fundamentally terrible and they, they, they there's no reason we don't need to give any particular reason why they're so terrible. They're just terrible. You know so so that's an interesting contrast for me. There, there's a you know there, that kind of it seems to kind of like pull towards like more fundamental kind of way of thinking about the global south. Well, let's look at the savior complex as part of it. We've talked a lot about in the past, and there's a trope about the white savior, the white female savior specifically, Angelique Jolie. Many action movies tend to have the Red Cross worker again as a white woman. Uh, That's very, very typical out of Hollywood. Uh, So we're starting to see some of the same iconography and, and imagery coming into these Chinese narratives. And there's one that's really interesting. It's called Ebola Fighters. That came out earlier this year. It's a 24-part streaming series produced by Tencent. Uh, That was really a huge hit. People loved it, but it was only available on streaming. By the way, if you're interested in this and you don't speak Chinese, all 24 episodes are now available on YouTube, and then somebody translated and put subtitles in it. So if you want to watch Ebola Fighters, just look up Ebola Fighters, and you'll see all 24 episodes that are there. Like other of the movies, this one was set in a fictitious African country, but it's based on China's response to the Ebola crisis in West Africa in 2014. In this trailer, you're going to hear a little bit of a different tone. So rather than shooting things up and blowing things up and evacuating people, this is all about the a passionate team of Chinese medical workers who go to this West African country and are you know, risking their lives and doing everything to save these people from Ebola. By the way, that actually did happen. I mean, the Chinese, like the Americans, and many countries sent personnel to uh, West Africa in 2014. And so I don't want to take anything away from that. But what is so interesting about Ebola fighters, though, and I'd like to get both of your takes on this, is how one of the differences between, say, Hollywood and Chinese 
Chinese cinema is that you can tell that the scripts in Chinese cinema have been written in conjunction with the government. Because so, I mean, just the way they present the flag and the way they put the handshakes, they mirror so much of the diplomatic iconography that we see in our in our daily China-Africa coverage. And again, there's this subtle tone, Kobus, that you've brought up over and over again, is that we are here and the West either caused this problem or they're not here. And again, it's very much a part of the framing. These shows, to be clear are not meant for African audience, Western audiences. They are meant exclusively for Chinese domestic audiences. And so they are sending back signals about Chinese patriotism, Chinese politics, the Chinese role in the world, win-win diplomacy, shared prosperity. All of these propaganda tools that are common in, again, the diplomacy are also very common in the entertainment. So, Giraud, let's start with you talking a little bit about the savior complex. And again, Africa is a place to be rescued. It's a place to be evacuated from. But Africans themselves are are bit parts in these narratives. Yes, exactly. That savior complex is really, it's something that, as we said before, is very underlying in these Chinese movies. And in the case of Ebola, I, I, I was quite a bit surprised because when you think of Ebola, and I'm going to really put it in that under this China-US engagement in Africa, when it comes to Ebola, for instance, we saw that the US did much more in terms of, for example, fighting Ebola, in terms of financing the vaccine against Ebola, in terms of really helping a lot in terms of healing and helping people on the ground than the Chinese. But uh, when it came to, you know, to, to portray it and to talk about it, the US, they did not do much, but the Chinese, they did with this kind of movies. But as you say, it's not for African audience or uh, Western audience, it's for Chinese audience, like to portray ourselves in that position where even when it comes to, we did that in politics, we did that in war, and we also do that in health. We can also be doing that in health, helping others to provide, to provide those kind of help. I would not be surprised that in the coming yeah, maybe coming, maybe next year or coming month, we're going to see another one related now to COVID, how they've been, you know, sending vaccine, how they've been sending doctors and helping out when it comes to COVID. But yes, Africa remains that place that needs a savior, savior from itself, savior from uh, Western involvement, because in the case of Ebola, it's different. The cause of the problem doesn't come from the West, doesn't come from outside. It's a much more internal problem to Africa itself. And we can come and help. We can ha- come and help them. And, you know, we can, see, we can project our power as, uh, on a different stage as military, diplomatic and on the health sector. Too. We can also do that. So, Kobus, let's give the last word to you to help us kind of frame and understand all of these different movies. So many of the insights that Giraud has provided in terms of the savior complex, the the agency of Africa and Africans in these movies, what should people take away from these movies like Homecoming, Wolf Warrior II, Operation Red Sea, and even Ebola Fighters? In the first place, I think, you know, if, you, if you're watching a movie that happens to be set in a fictional African country, you're on shaky ground to begin with. But like, you know, so, so yeah, so, so, so the, the, the constancy of Africa's kind of instrumentalization as this you know in in this particular way you know the 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 kind of bit part in its own in its own setting the the having to be rescued the being a kind of a, a an arena right kind of for for external power the way the way that it's that is portrayed i think is dispiriting you know it's it's interesting that it's also happening at a moment when africa itself is is putting out a lot more trans transnational media um of its own you know kind of there's a lot more 
more African, you know, kind of TV series and so on, not only being produced, but also being circulated on international platforms. So, you know, kind of when a lot of a lot of African creators, I think, are, are at a moment where they where they glimpse the, the the potential to speak to an international audience and to kind of claim their own story in a way that that wasn't allowed, um, you know, b- before, um, among others because of the dominance of Hollywood, but also because of the dominance of, of just global North circulation systems. You know, so, so, so all of this is happening at the same time. But I think, you know, most dominantly, I think it seems like we're in a particular moment where, you know, a, a particular moment over a, a several decade kind of rollout of Chinese power into the world. And, you know, part of part of the role of these movies, particularly because they are so, because they're happening in such a centralized system and because the, the movies are made by so closely in coordination with, with government forces, is that it, it becomes a kind of, it, it can be read as a form of official messaging to, a, to an extent that you can't read Hollywood, right? And so, you know, and, and, and therefore I think it, it does seem to me to to be this kind of like big back and forth kind of conversation between the Jap- between the Chinese state and the Chinese public about what the full implications are, are going to be of uh, of being a, a superpower, um, you know. And and you know, one, one sees similar kind of kind of waves in American cinema, you know, kind of for example, you know, as as American cinema moving from the 30s to the 50s um, also went through through kind of a, a similar kind of kind of set of kind of negotiations about you know about it's its own set of kind of white savior films and its own set of of kind of different kind of ways of 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 um portraying these these foreign encounters right kind of which include action movies and comedies uh, musicals and a lot of different genres and then in the 60s and 70s one sees a, a real kind of darkening of that and a real um a real kind of questioning of of you know of of all of these kind of issues right kind of like about like is it good to be this out in the world is you know kind of is it possible to even to do good in the world you know kind of like is is all is is everything already kind of tainted by power it'll be interesting to see if china gets there you know kind of like it'll be interesting to see what kind of china we're talking about by the time that those kind of movies are made because of course chinese cinema is a, is a big complicated sophisticated you know old um there's there's been many chinese cinemas in you know kind of through through the decades um some highly critical of 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 state power some not so you know kind of so it's it's going to be very interesting to see what happens when you know the political mood in china you know shifts over the next few years and what kind of ambivalences about about international about its international presence will show up in movies now? I feel, my feeling is that this is this is going to be, uh, you know, going to be later going to look back at this at this kind of like wave of these movies as a kind of a indication of a particular era, and then we're going to be shifting into other eras. Well, one thing we do know for sure is that a movie that takes in 115 million dollars in five days is going to spawn more of these movies. So that is for sure. These things generate money. And because they generate money, they're going to be told over and over again. So I think there's a a part of this that the Chinese audiences just absolutely love. It's understandable. It makes people feel proud. It's patriotic. I mean, those are natural emotions, no doubt. And so given that there's an appetite for it, we can expect to see more. So we'll add the future ones to our list. I'm going to put the links to all the trailers that I included in the sound today in the show in the show notes on our website. 
And uh, so if you go to ChinaGlobalSouth.com, you'll also find we've got amazing transcripts now of all the shows. So if you miss something that Kobus and Jiro said, uh, you can go into the transcript and you can search it. That's available for subscribers. Uh, our subscriptions to our service are super cheap, and you can pick up all the amazing insights that Kobus and Jiro and Nesreen in Cairo are doing uh, every day at ChinaGlobalSouth.com slash subscribe. We'd love for you to join our reader community. Jiro, just quickly before we go, you are managing our Patreon community. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on over on Patreon? So uh, our Patreon community, I'd like first to thank our Patreon community. It's a growing community where we have people supporting us, supporting the work that we do. Because as you, as you know, it's really not easy to be covering uh, news impartially when it comes to Chinese engagement in the global south. So we're really grateful to our Patreon community, those who are coming and keep on joining us to supporting us for us to do this independent journalism. And uh, for all of you out there who like what we do and you really like to support us, come and join our Patreon community, www.patreon.com slash China Global South. Yes, if I'm correct. No, is um, it China so Global it, South or China Africa? I think it's still China. Chi oh, no, we changed it. China Global we changed South. changed it. Exactly. Yeah. So... Exactly. So you come and join us and we're going to have, we have different tiers of Patreon. So we have a tier where you can have a monthly call with us where we're going to give you all the insight. If you want to have a one-to-one -one talk with us, we can give you this one, uh, we can give you this one, one-to-one -one talk with insight of different story that we are covering. And yes, that's it. So really, I'm really expecting you guys to come and join our Patreon community so you can have much, yeah interactive and we did uh in fact jero and i did a briefing yesterday a quick shout out to stefan yeah. uh thank you so much for being a supporter of ours and he has uh as the top tier he gets a monthly briefing with us cobus and i have done a number of these briefings with uh, other patreon members so once again patreon.com slash china global south i think that's it i'll put the link again in the show notes we we made some changes from china africa but uh we'll put the, the correct link in the show notes so until next week, we'll have episodes both of our China Global South podcast. Everybody, of course, in the China Africa feed gets the Global South. But if you'd like to subscribe only to the Global South podcast, you can find it in all your favorite podcast directories. So we hope that you'll enjoy that program as well. We've got some great shows on India and Pakistan coming up over the next two weeks. So very exciting there. So for Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, for Jero in Mauritius, for me here in Ho Chi Minh City, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next week with another episode of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, see you later. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at ProjetAfriqueChine.com and AfriqueChine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>